Let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would give us ears to hear your word. May your word, and particularly the attitude of John the Baptist as he centers, he preaches Christ and puts him above all things, Lord, may his attitude shape us tonight. May we see Jesus as the supreme Son of God as we come to this passage. I pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Jealous or joyful? Uh, That was the choice I was faced with as I sat through my first Bible college graduation ceremony. You see, back in those days at uh, the college, they had an award that was titled Best First Year Candidate. Clinton probably remembers this one. Now, even though most of you are assuming that I just took that title easily in first year, uh, it's sad to say that it, it went to another. So I sat there and watched as a, another guy came up to the applause of everyone and received Best First Year Candidate. Will I be jealous of that honour, or will I be joyful? Thanking God for the gifts he gave the other student, which could be used for Christ's glory. Jealous or joyful? Now, I'll be honest, part of me sat there thinking, man, that title would be pretty sweet. I bet it feels good to have that kind of attention. I kind of wish I had that. Now, I suspect uh, that many of you here tonight might know that tension in the Christian life among our brothers and sisters, that tension between jealousy and joy. Well, in our passage today, we see a similar tension between the jealous attitude of John's disciples and the joyful attitude of John the Baptist. You see, where the disciples of John express a self-focused jealousy over the loss of their teacher's popularity, John the Baptist expresses a Christ-centered joy over the fact that Jesus, the center of his life, is becoming known and exalted in front of an ever-widening audience. And you see, if joy, not jealousy, is going to win the battle of our hearts as we do life together here at Bundy and beyond, well, we need to see Jesus as the supreme Son of God like John does. We need to kill self-focused jealousy with Christ-centered joy. So what we'll do as we walk our way through this passage uh, is we'll look at the attitude of both the disciples of John and then John the Baptist himself to the rising popularity of Jesus. And then we'll take some time at the end to consider what all this means for us.
So first, the, the jealousy of John's disciples. You see, John's disciples are upset about the fact that Jesus' popularity is increasing while their guy, John the Baptist's popularity, is kind of decreasing. You see, at this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has moved on from his conversation with Nicodemus that we saw last week. He's headed out of Jerusalem into the Judean countryside, and there he, or or more specifically his disciples, as chapter 4, verse 2 clarify, there they begin baptizing people right upstream from John. John, who was known at this point for his own baptism of repentance, as he prepared and pointed people to God's coming Messiah. You see, look at how verses 22 to 24 set the scene for us. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now, John also was baptising at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. Now, you can almost imagine the scene here. There's John's disciples down one end of the stream, helping with the preparations, assisting people as they come into the water, organising the towels. But not long into their day's activities, they start to notice that various groups of people aren't actually stopping at their camp, but continuing on, walking right on past. And so as they, they squint downstream to, or upstream to see where they're all headed, well, they notice another group of men baptising. And who's there at the, the centre of all those men? Well, it's, it's that man that John had met earlier, the one their rabbi had declared to be the the son of God, who would take away the sin of the world, John 1, 29 to 34. Now, although John's disciples had heard those words, heard that title given to Jesus, something seems to have prevented those words from taking root in their heart. See, I don't know if you noticed, but there's There's not really any excitement here from the disciples that the Lamb of God has returned. I mean, they're not rushing out of the water to to follow the crowds to Jesus. They're not dropping their towels. They don't start calling on everyone else around them to likewise go down to Jesus. You see, astonishingly, it's not joy we see here. It's actually jealousy. You see, I think John's disciples had got used to following a popular and influential man in John the Baptist. They wanted their teacher, not this new guy, to continue to have the attention of the people. They wanted all those passers-by to stop passing by. And jealousy seems to spill over into general irritation at this point, you might have noticed, as John's disciples enter into a bit of an argument, a discussion, 
over ceremonial washing with a particular Jew who is also passing by in verse 25. Now, we're not actually given many details about this particular man or conversation. Perhaps this man was hitting on a a nerve by critiquing John's baptism in, uh, in light of this other baptism going on up the stream. But what does appear to be the case is this seems to be the straw that breaks the camel's back for the disciples. You see, think about it from their point of view just for a minute. They had already lost two of their core team back in John chapter 1, verse 37, when two of John's disciples leave John to follow Jesus on the first encounter. Now John's ministry had begun bleeding numbers as people passed by John's baptism in favour of Jesus, and now it seems that they even have to defend their right to exist to a no-name passerby. In their minds, enough is enough. And so they down tools, they march straight up to John, and look at verse 26. Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, that one that you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. And you can imagine how the conversation would have kind of continued on from there. Uh, Rabbi, John, look, we know you hold this man in high regard, but don't you care about all those people that are ignoring your important work? I mean, you used to be a star, but now you're playing second fiddle to this guy. I mean, we've got to do something about this. We've got to do something to draw those crowds back. Maybe some of them started suggesting a donut cart, some water games for the kids. John, we've got to nip this problem in the bud before you've got no followers left at all. Well, how does John respond to his disciples' jealousy over Jesus getting all the attention here? We're told, aren't we, in verses 27 to 30, we're told that John responds to this situation with joy. So let's consider that second point, the joy of John the Baptist. You see, surely John likewise sees the same crowds walking past him onto Jesus But the difference between John and his disciples is that John loves it. And you see, he wants his disciples to love it too. That's why he takes the time to explain his attitude so that they too can know joy in Jesus, not jealousy over crowd size. You see, John wants his disciples to get to a point where they are happy that Jesus is getting all the attention that he deserves. And it's kind of a freeing feeling, isn't it? It's a really freeing thought. Imagine how good it would be to live your Christian life free of jealousy, 
comparison, competition. Well, that's what John is trying to instill in his disciples at this point. So let's listen. You see, John could be free of jealousy and comparison because he knew that God had given him a certain ministry for a certain time. It's like he's saying to his disciples, God gave those people to me for a specific purpose and only for a time that in listening to my message, they might get ready to meet someone much greater than me, their saviour, the Messiah, God's promised king. And guys, now, now the main man is here, God is rightly moving us moving them from us to him. And that's great. See, look at verses 27 to 28. To this John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. Oh, you yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. Those crowds that you guys are longing for, John says, they don't belong to me. They belong to Jesus. They're right to walk on past us to him. You see, just as a bride belongs to no one else but the bridegroom, God's people belong only to God's promised Messiah and Saviour Jesus. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. John's saying, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. He's just saying, I'm the best man at the wedding. I'm not the main deal. He is. It's my joy to love and serve him as he comes to meet his bride, as his bride comes to meet him. I take joy in my God-given role of pointing his people, his bride, to him and away from me. Look at verses 29 to 30. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. Uh, I went through a phase where I was best man and a groomsman many, many times. Um, Yeah, I was once referred to as a romantic comedy because I was always the bride, what is it, the male version of always the bride, but never the, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. I was the male version of that. So needless to say, I had a lot of experience in roles as best man and and groomsman. Um, And I guess what I can tell you is that one of the best moments of being uh, a, a groomsman or a best man is to actually look at the face of the groom as the bride to be is walking down the aisle. I mean, who was here at Joel and Chantal's wedding the other day when you looked at Joel 
as Chantal was walking down the aisle. I mean, I mean, it was... <laughs> it's just a joyful thing to see, isn't it? The smile that comes across the face, the, the tears. You love it when you see your friend being united to the one he loves. And as best man, you're there for him, not yourself. And you find joy in that. See, just think how horrifying it would be if a best man was to walk out to meet the bride as she entered the church. Imagine if the best man said to her, look, you know what? Uh, I think you're better off with me. Uh, I think I've earned your love. I mean, I've been slaving away on this wedding prep, organising cars, suits. You see, we all understand how wrong that is, don't we? John's disciples would have understood how wrong that is. And so John is saying, I would never think about doing something so abominable, something so horrific as to try and claim the bride of the groom I am the friend of. No, no, the groom, that man upstream, he must become greater and I must become less. And did you notice the word in verse 30, must? Jesus becoming great is part of God's plan. John knows that it is God's plan to exalt Jesus above all else. He knows that he has merely been a voice in the wilderness, pointing people to Jesus. But now a greater voice is here, the voice of the bridegroom. And that fills him with joy, verse 29. Because this is a voice so much greater than John's. It's a voice that will raise the spiritually dead to life. A voice that will draw God's people to their Messiah, they will know it, John 10, like sheep hearing the voice of their shepherd and come to him. John rejoices in all of that. He willingly submits to God's plan to make the name of Jesus great. And he does it even when it costs him personally. You see, his... Career is pretty much over at this point. Uh, Nicholas Sinzendorf was a Christian pioneer uh, in the um, a Christian mission pioneer of the 18th century, and he famously, famously said this: "Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten." Well, that's John's attitude here, isn't it? I mean, he preached of God's coming Messiah. He sees people going to him. And now it's almost as if he's happy to, be, happy to die and be forgotten. John kind of disappears from 
uh, this gospel at this point. It won't be long before he's put in prison and executed. His career is certainly over, but still he is able to say, my joy is complete. See, for John, it's not about his own glory, but the glory of Jesus. So long as Jesus is becoming known as the great saviour that he is, that's enough for him. Uh, It's somewhat reminiscent, you might remember, uh, of Paul's joy in Philippians chapter 1. See, there's Paul sitting under lock and key for being a Christian, and to make matters worse, there were some Christians on the outside who kind of had twisted motives and were preaching the gospel of Jesus in order to stir up trouble for Paul. With friends like that, who needs enemies? But what does Paul say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or, or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Verse 21, he goes on to say, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul rejoices despite his loss of freedom. John rejoices despite his loss of career, popularity. Now I suspect we look at John's attitude here and and the attitude of Paul in Philippians and think, I really wish I had that kind of undefiled joy for Jesus' glory? Well, in the last section of this passage, we get the kind of why it is that these guys could have that. Why it is that Jesus occupies such a central place in the life of John the Baptist. And you see, as we look at this section, it's worth asking ourselves the question, Is John seeing something about Jesus that I might be missing? Does the view of Jesus given in this last section of the text match my view of Jesus? Let's consider the third point, the supremacy of the Son. See, what does John see when he sees the man Jesus amidst the crowds? Does he see a rival? Uh, Does he see just the next fad in Judaism? No, no. He sees the Son of God at work. Uh, Just look at the description we're given of him. First, John sees God as the greatest gift to humanity. He is above all. He has no rival because he is not from heaven, but he's not from earth, but heaven. Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, the great boxing champion, famously said, I am the greatest. But John's reminding us here that Ali was wrong. 
See, Ali may have been a great boxer, but he was of this earth. He grew old, he got sick, and then he died. Jesus is the greatest because he's not from this earth, but from heaven. He healed the sick when he came, controlled the wind and the waves, raised the dead, and would defeat death itself by rising again to life. See, even John the Baptist, who actually had a divine calling from God, understood that he too was merely from this earth. He just spoke what was given to him. You want the greatest, you look at Jesus, the man upstream. But second, John sees Jesus as the one who speaks God's true word. You see, when you hear Jesus speak, it's not like you're listening to a kind of Gandhi figure or the intellectual genius of a Stephen Hawking. See, those guys, at one level, you can take or leave without major consequence. But when Jesus speaks, God is speaking. See, look at verse 32. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. John and the other prophets spoke the words of God occasionally as the Spirit of God enabled them. But it's different with Jesus. He has the Spirit without limit. Whenever he speaks, God speaks. A third, John sees Jesus as God's beloved son and judge of all the earth. Verse 35. The father loves the son and has placed some things, many things. No, has placed all things in his hands. In his hands. God the Father loves God the Son and has made him Lord and judge of us all. Jesus is the one who we're going to stand before on that last day of judgment. He's the one that will search our hearts. He is the one who will hold your eternal destiny in his hand. But did you notice the final way in which John sees Jesus? God's only saviour. See, John knows that that guy up the stream, he is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. See, Jesus gave Nicodemus, we heard it last week, didn't we, a pretty bleak picture of humanity. Remember, he told Nicodemus that in humanity's hearts, in our hearts, we actually love darkness. We resist God's light 
because we don't like our evil deeds being exposed. As God's king and judge, Jesus has every right to pour out God's wrath on us as sinners. But instead, he offers us eternal life by becoming our saviour, dying for our sins on the cross and being raised to life. Now perhaps you're here tonight and you know you've actually been living life, rejecting Jesus, and perhaps you're feeling a little uncomfortable at the way the passage ends, at the thought that you will have to face up to the one that you've been rejecting your whole life. Well, believe in Jesus, God's Son, and don't be uncomfortable any longer. Trust him and find eternal life. Uh, I remember meeting up with one of the senior youth group kids many years ago um, at La Salita's coffee shop just down the corner there. And I was having coffee with this uh, guy and one of his friends from youth group as well. And I just asked this kid what he thought about Jesus. Just put it out there. And his response was this, I think he's a pretty good bloke. If I had had a sip of coffee, I would have been all over the window. A pretty good bloke? But my barber is a pretty good bloke. My neighbour who I met the other day, he's a pretty good bloke. The op shop lady who dinged my car the other day. It turns out she's a pretty good bloquette. (laughs) You see, Jesus is not just a pretty good bloke. He is the supreme son of God. You see, that's how John saw Jesus. That's why Jesus was at the very centre of John's world, That's why John could rejoice as he watched people failing to notice him as they moved towards Jesus. See, how could he be jealous or upset when the one he valued more than anything was getting all the attention? He must become greater. I must become less. He owned those words and loved him. So what can we take away from this passage? Well, I think this passage challenges us to search our attitudes as we live as followers for Jesus in community together. You see, this passage confronts us with the jealous attitude we all know. But it also shows us the joyful attitude that we need where Christ is at the centre of our lives and it's our pleasure to see him exalted by everyone around us. So first, the jealous attitude we know. The start of this passage, I think, resonates with a lot of us. It confronts us with the jealous attitude that we kind of see a little bit in ourselves. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, the the self-focused jealousy that lurked in John's disciples here, 
is never too far away from our hearts. The desire for our name to become great is always kind of hanging around us. Uh, We see it when we serve in in team ministry sometimes. Some people get praised for their efforts, but nothing is said of us. That stings. We want the praise and affirmation. Oh, you put so much effort into your Sunday school lesson, cutting out all those little sheep pieces. But then no parent gives you any encouragement, not even a thanks. Our first thought isn't to, to thank God that the children have learnt a passage about the Good Shepherd, perhaps, but to become upset that we haven't been affirmed in cutting out the sheep pieces. Perhaps we've seen this attitude raise its ugly head even in such a good thing like evangelism. Instead of rejoicing when we hear of someone being brought to Christ, we're consumed with kind of wishing we were that person that brought them to Christ. The sort of person that wins so many souls for Jesus. But John is encouraging both his disciples and and us, really, isn't it? To kill self-focused jealousy with Christ-centered joy. So let's consider the joyful attitude that we need. See, because John sees Jesus as the supreme Son of God who saves people from their sin, he is happy to say, he must become greater, I must become less. You see, if you can see Jesus as John sees him here, I think you too will joyfully say, he must increase and I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. See, thinking less of ourselves will actually free us up to serve Jesus with joy and to love being in a church with many different gifts and abilities. When we aren't recognized or affirmed, it won't crush us if we know that Jesus is still being exalted. See, what really encouraged me about this last week was how I saw Christ-centered joy at play in the helpers of GSF, our children's holiday program. You see, I saw people who cared less about having a relaxed, extended break over summer than declaring Jesus' greatness to children. One guy was prepared to don a lion onesie, dancing on stage, embarrassing himself so that he might help these kids learn a verse that declares Jesus' greatness. But you see, people didn't seem jealous or competitive in the ways that they served. From what I saw, people encouraged one another over the lunchtime debrief. People were willing to say it at many and various and varied levels, I think, 
Jesus must increase at this week of GSF, and I'm happy to decrease. Well, how are we going to continue to do it going into this year? How are we going to continue to say, as rosters need to be filled, as someone sitting there on their own, not talking to anyone, as someone needs to be encouraged or comforted, how are we going to say, Jesus first, me second, I'm going? And you see, learning to say, he must become greater and I must become less, in our conversation, uh, see, learning to say uh, that Jesus must become greater and I must become less will help us in our conversations with people who don't follow Jesus. You see, we've just moved into our new house in Watsonia and I've started to get to know our neighbours. We already knew a couple of them from kinder, but I've got to know the guy across the road and a couple of others. And we started having some good conversations. But what I've found is that little temptation, there's a little temptation that always creeps in to not be too full on about Jesus, to stay to safe topics that make you not look like a complete religious nut. And so in that moment, in those conversations, I need to be challenging myself, don't I? Who do I want to see greater in this conversation? Me or Jesus? Uh, whose glory and reputation do I want to advance right now to this bloke? Me or Jesus? See, as Ruth and I get to know our neighbours more and more, as we have them around for dinner, we have to keep saying, as I encourage you to, Jesus must become greater. I must become less. Uh, in closing, one of the encouraging things about uh, my church placement at Surrey Hills last year uh, was the particular way a, a couple in the morning service uh, sought to bless Ruth and I where they could. And there was this one occasion in which a lady drove all the way to Bandura to drop off a cake her husband had made. And I thought, man, what an encouraging thing to do, driving from flash Surrey Hills to moderately flash Bandura. <laughs> And let me tell you, that cake was delicious. It was Oreo cheesecake with a little Oreo stuck around it. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But do you know what the best part of that cake was? It was the message that the guy had written on the cake. And this is what it said. Joy in Jesus. You see, in the middle of my last uh, year of Bible college, it actually wasn't really cake that I needed, although that was good. <laughs> it was that message. 
You see, I needed that reminder before I took that big step into full-time gospel ministry where feelings of jealousy and competitiveness are kind of always quietly lurking. I needed that message. That's actually the message we all need. More than cake, more than anything. You see, we can all have joy in Jesus because he is God's supreme son, the Lord of us all, our saviour who gives eternal life to all who believe in him. So it's my prayer that, that you would go into this week with joy in your heart for Jesus, ready to kill self-focused jealousy with Christ-centered joy. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can indeed have joy in Jesus. Thank you that he is your beloved Son, our Saviour, who through belief in his name gives eternal life freely. Father, may we go into this week wanting more than anything to see his name made great. May he become greater and we become less in his presence. Amen.